On a warm night in July of 2000, 33-year-old Christoph Rokenkor was enjoying an intimate, delicious dinner in a backyard in the Hamptons. Christoph had met his host, an artist named Hines Seron Payon, just that afternoon at Hines's art gallery. He had already charmed his way into a dinner invitation. Hines was impressed by Christoph. He was clearly a wealthy, intelligent man, well-versed in both art and travel. After watching Christophe discuss which of Hines's paintings he intended to purchase and brag about the Picassos and Pissarros he had hanging at home, Hines knew he had to get to know his new customer better. Christophe introduced himself to Hines as Christopher Rockefeller. Hines raised his eyebrows and Christophe chuckled, yes, as in those Rockefellers. He was, indeed, a member of one of the wealthiest families in America. Hines invited Christoph over for dinner that night, promising him a delightful evening full of lively conversation and exquisite food and drink. Dinner went exactly as promised, but when the meal was finished, Hines wasn't ready for the night to end. He went to his pantry to get another bottle of wine, but all he had left was a cheap jug of red that he often used to make sangria. He decanted the cheap wine and winced as he poured some into Christoph's glass. He was certain that the Rockefeller would immediately notice what he had been served and find it wanting. When the moment of truth came, Christoph swirled the wine in his glass and then in his mouth, swallowing slowly, relishing the taste. He smiled at Hines and told him the wine was wonderful. He guessed he was drinking a Bordeaux. Hines was shocked, but smiled back and told him it was actually from California. Christophe took another sip and continued conversation with another one of the guests. Hines sat back in his chair and examined his new friend closely. A member of the Rockefeller family who spoke with a French accent and couldn't tell the difference between a Bordeaux and two buck chuck? It didn't add up. Hines knew right then and there, the man at his dinner table was undoubtedly a fraud. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. This is our second episode on serial imposter Christoph Rokenkor. Last week, we covered Christoph's journey from abandoned child to famous con artist, which took him from an orphanage in France all the way to Beverly Hills. 
This week, we'll discuss Christophe's life for the past 20 years, which he spent in the Hamptons and in Paris, in and out of prison, and always with a different woman by his side. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Christophe Rochencourt is one of the most famous con artists alive today. His transition from poor orphan to wealthy man might have been inspiring if he hadn't aspired to a life of crime. After he was abandoned by both of his parents, Christophe spent his childhood in an orphanage and then in a foster home, escaping to Paris as soon as he turned 18. After swindling several people in Paris and allegedly robbing a jewelry store in Switzerland, Christophe moved to Los Angeles, where he stayed for most of the next decade. Christophe perfected his signature scheme in California, it was fairly straightforward, but effective. He would pose as a wealthy French investor and put together business deals with actually wealthy Angelinos. When they gave him an initial sum to invest, he pocketed it and walked away. Christophe knew that while his con could be simple, his appearance could not be. In order to continue socializing with and stealing from the rich and famous, Christophe had to look like he belonged among them. Luckily, he had an unparalleled ability to wrest money and gifts from people, which he used to maintain his luxurious lifestyle. Throughout the 1990s, Christophe lived in suites in various Beverly Hills hotels that he never paid for. He wore stolen Versace suits and drove gifted Bentleys and Ferraris. He was charismatic, charming, and mysterious, befriending celebrities and wooing several beautiful women along the way. His first wife, Gree Park, eventually became suspicious and left Christophe less than a year after they were married. After their relationship failed, he badgered her with calls and visits, stalking her and their daughter for the next several months. He even managed to bother her while he spent a short stint in prison overseas. But in 1996, Christophe seemed to finally get over Gris. He married Pia Reyes, a former Playboy model. Pia stayed with Christophe despite his dangerous lifestyle. She stuck by him when the FBI raided their hotel suite, when he had an affair with another woman, and even when he was involved in a shooting in West Hollywood. 
In 1999, Pierre and Christophe moved to New York City, where they stayed for several months as Christophe swindled business owners and wealthy women alike. But he started feeling the heat in Manhattan, and in the summer of 2000, he moved his family out to the Hamptons, where he intended to scam New Yorkers on the coast the same way he fooled those in the city. Thirty-three-year-old Christophe Rokencourt began using the alias Christopher Rockefeller as soon as he hit the Hamptons. The famous name opened plenty of doors for him, including the one to a $15,000-a-week suite at the Pink House Hotel. Christophe, Pia, and their three-year-old son Zeus moved into the Pink House and Christophe immediately implanted himself in the affluent community, pulling the same scam on Long Island that he did in LA. He promised people he would transform their $100,000 investment into millions within weeks. Christophe spent his days house hunting with a real estate agent and his nights hosting parties in his hotel suite. The realtor in particular gave him $108,000 to invest, and she never saw a penny of that money again. In July of 2000, Christophe met a woman named Corinne Eeltink, who worked as a masseuse at the East Hampton gym. He convinced her to give him $14,000 to invest for her, with a promise that he would quickly triple her money. Corinne liked Christophe straight away and began introducing him to all of her friends. It was through Corinne that he met the artist Hines Saron-Payon, the first person in East Hampton to discover that Christophe was a fraud. After Christophe couldn't detect the difference between cheap and expensive wine, Hines knew he was dealing with a conman. But instead of feeling betrayed by his dinner guest, Hines was fascinated by Christophe. He suspected others would be too. Instead of outing him, he decided to stage a dinner party so that he and his friends could observe a real con artist in action. Hines told Christophe that he would be dining with some bona fide VIPs, an art collector, the daughters of a Greek shipping tycoon, and the daughter of an executive of Sony Tokyo. In reality, the table was populated with a contractor, a photojournalist, a lawyer, and the New York Bureau Chief of People magazine. Hines's friends were thrilled to take part in his parlor game and to see what they could get Christophe to admit or agree to. Hines and his friends' fascination with Christophe may seem strange. After all, they could have turned this con man into the authorities instead of inviting him over for dinner. But most of us, at one time or another, have probably found ourselves intrigued by a criminal. In fact, in a paper from the University of Illinois 1991 Law Review, Martha Grace Duncan asserts that our attraction to criminals is far from surprising. The paper, entitled A Strange Liking, Our Admiration for Criminals, explores the myriad of reasons that average, law-abiding citizens find themselves fascinated by crooks. Martha posits that many of us unconsciously view the law the same way we viewed our parents as children, as an entity of authority. If the law represents the parent, 
then that would make the lawbreaker the child. And Martha believes that the youthful quality is part of a criminal's appeal. She writes that the essence of his charm seems to lie in utter obliviousness to the moral code, together with a childlike assumption that people will not hold him accountable for his evil deeds. Ultimately, all of Martha's hypotheses come down to one conclusion. We're attracted to criminals because they represent freedom. Criminals are unencumbered by an awareness of or respect for the law, as well as from adult responsibility and consequence. From that point of view, it makes sense that Hines and his friends invited one over for dinner. Who wouldn't want to observe and learn from a man as free as Christoph Rokenkor? After the dinner party, Hines and his guests laughed at the man who had pretended to be a Rockefeller. In hindsight, they couldn't believe they had fallen for his scam. Members of the Rockefeller family did not speak with thick French accents or drive rented Mazdas, and they certainly weren't cagey about where they lived. But it was only under a special kind of scrutiny that the diners were able to see through Christophe's carefully constructed veneer. In order to see the con man behind the socialite, they had to know what they were looking for. Just as Hines and his friends had wised up to Christoph's true nature, so had many others in the Hamptons. Unfortunately for Christoph, however, these people were far less interested in inviting him over for dinner than they were in turning him in to the police. Coming up, Christoph finds himself in hot water with two Hamptons detectives on his trail. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 2000, 33-year-old Christoph Rokenkor's well-worn conman routine was starting to wear thin. After trying to pass himself off as a member of the uber-wealthy Rockefeller family in the Hamptons, his ruse was discovered by artist Hines Saron Payon. However, some of his other marks still believed his lies and thought that investing with him would make them rich. Corinne Eeltink, the masseuse who had previously given Christoph $14,000, had also promised to lend him another $125,000 to invest for her. But before she had the chance to give him the money, she had to leave the country unexpectedly to take care of her father, who had suffered a stroke. In the wake of her sudden departure, Corrine asked her friend, Kevin McCrary, to wire Christoph the funds for her. But first, Kevin wanted to get a read on this investor that his friend was so eager to throw money at. After meeting Corrine at the airport, Kevin went straight to meet Christoph and some of his friends at a nightclub called NV. Kevin had grown up around money, and he wasn't fooled by Christoph for a second. He even knew members of the Rockefeller family personally, so he was well aware that Christoph wasn't one of them. But later, when Kevin tried to convince his friends that Christoph wasn't who he said he was, he was met with hostility and resistance. One of Kevin's friends even kicked him out of his house for suggesting that Christoph might be a con man. People had simply given Christoph too much of their money already and they didn't want to face the fact that they had been swindled. 
Kevin accepted that he would have to fight this criminal alone. He tried to get Christoph to give Corrine her $14,000 back, and when his efforts proved unsuccessful, he went to the police. Unfortunately, because Corrine had willingly given Christoph her money, there was nothing the authorities could do. No crime had actually been committed. Even though Christoph's actions were technically legal, two Hamptons detectives recognized that Kevin had alerted them to the presence of a probable criminal. They figured they could catch him in the act if they followed him around for a bit, and the detectives enlisted Kevin's help to track down the elusive conman. The detectives had allowed Kevin to accompany them on a stakeout at the East Hampton gym in an unmarked car as they tried to pin a crime on the man. Eventually, the detectives learned that Christoph had walked out on an $8,000 hotel bill at the Millgarth Country Inn in Amagansett. That was definitely a crime. They finally spotted Christoph heading out of the East Hampton gym and the detectives, after briefly observing the con artist and a companion, detained Christoph and threw him in jail. The detectives managed to hold him on charges of theft of services and false impersonation. With bail set at $45,000, they hoped they could keep Christoph locked up for a while. But he somehow retained the services of Bruce Cutler, a defense attorney best known for representing the notorious gangster John Gotti. He made bail the next day. Christoph skipped town as soon as he was released, and his disappearance only encouraged law enforcement to look deeper into his history. When the authorities discovered that Christopher Rockefeller was actually Christoph Rokencore, their manhunt intensified. This was not a simple grifter they were looking for. Christoph was a career criminal. He was wanted for illegal firearms possession and bribing passport officials in Los Angeles, as well as several counts of fraud in Manhattan. FBI agents and US Marshals hunted for Christoph, as did several high-profile media outlets. Across the country, everyone was looking for Christoph Rokencore, but no one could find him. After managing to stay hidden for almost a year, Christoph finally popped up again in April of 2001, all the way in Victoria, British Columbia. There, Christoph adopted a new alias, Mikhail von Hoven, a former pilot, Swiss businessman, and a Formula One race car driver. Christoph performed the same simple Investicon in Canada that he had across the United States, making fast friends with several wealthy Canadians. Eventually, he was introduced to Robert Baldock, the president of HeartLink Canada Inc., a biotech and pharmaceutical company. Christoph convinced Robert that he wanted to invest $5 million in HeartLink, and Robert eagerly signed a business deal with the conman. In order to get the ball rolling, Robert gave Christoph roughly $170,000 in startup expenses. Christoph said he needed to have specific bankers fly in from Zurich to assist with the investment. So Robert gave him money to pay for their flights. 
Christophe also claimed that his lawyer was flying in from New York to facilitate the deal. So Robert paid for the lawyer's hotel room. On top of all of this, Robert also gifted Christophe a Rolex watch and a new computer. Of course, there were no bankers from Zurich and there was no lawyer from New York. Christophe stole the money that was supposed to fund the bankers and posed as the lawyer, moving into the hotel suite himself. Even when Christophe's investment funds failed to materialize, Robert still didn't suspect his new business partner of any wrongdoing. Christophe explained that his father was the keeper of the family money and that Robert was simply need to fly to Switzerland to straighten out the deal. Robert spent a week in Geneva, but no one ever came to meet him. In fact, no one had even heard of this so-called Mikhail van Hoven or his father, despite the fact that Christophe had insisted his family was well-connected in the city. However, Robert's unsuccessful trip to Geneva was still not enough to convince him that something was off about Christophe. As soon as Robert got home, the two men took their families on a joint vacation to a Whistler ski lodge. Robert was still so confident in his new friend that he had his wife, Norma, put Christophe's room on her credit card. The families enjoyed a nice holiday, and when their stay was up, Christophe told Robert that he, Pia, and Zeus were going to linger in Whistler a little bit longer. Not long after the Baldocks waved goodbye, Christophe began posing as Robert, using the credit card to rack up charges at the resort. It wasn't until Norma noticed some irregular charges on her credit card that Robert finally understood what had happened. He'd been taken for a ride. Embarrassed and upset, he and his wife immediately went to the police. In late April of 2001, after obtaining a warrant to enter Mikhail van Hoven's residence, the Canadian authorities discovered he was actually Christoph Rokenkor. They immediately searched for the infamous con artist. Though the FBI and US Marshals had been looking for him for months, Canadian Mounties quickly found Christoph and his family hiding at a seaside motel. They arrested both Christoph and Pia, placing four-year-old Zeus with child welfare authorities. Christoph was held without bail until his court appearance a week later in Vancouver, but Pia was released and resumed custody of Zeus. She also managed to escape any further punitive action by denying all knowledge of Christophe's scams. In an interview with Canada's National Post newspaper, Pia's sister, Mercedes Reyes, expressed concern about Pia's relationship with Christophe. She said, I think she's deluded herself into thinking he's fine. The presence of denial within romantic relationships is not something unique to con artists and their partners. Pia's ability to fall into a fog of denial, psychologically defending the dysfunction of her relationship, is actually a rather common phenomenon. The Mayo Clinic defines denial as a coping mechanism, something that can give people time to adjust to distressing situations. In that sense, it can occasionally be healthy in the short term. But long-term denial, especially within a relationship, is destructive to the psyche. 
the defense mechanism no longer serves to protect the individual, it solely serves to protect the attachment. It's easy for people on the outside of a relationship to identify the presence of denial within one and to judge the parties involved. But when you're in a relationship, it's harder to discern what's true and what's not. According to psychologists, once we're emotionally connected to a romantic partner, our ability to detect their lies is greatly diminished. Health scientist and sexuality educator Michael J. Basso says that to preserve the heart's logic, our emotions commandeer those beliefs we see through our conscious vision. This subconscious greatly influences what the conscious sees, acknowledges, interprets, and believes, and any dissonance comes in the form of denial. We don't know how Christoph explained his scams to Pia. Perhaps he managed to come up with a reasonably logical explanation for his behavior. If that were the case, Pia may have been psychologically unable to allow herself to believe anything other than what her lover told her. Pia was so sure that Christoph had done nothing wrong that she told her sister she expected Christoph to be set free after his first court date. Unfortunately, Christoph was not released from jail as she predicted. Instead, Christoph stayed in British Columbia moving between jail cells until 2002, when he was transferred to the US, where he was sentenced for some of the crimes he committed there. Coming up, Christoph Rokenkorps is finally forced to face justice. Now, back to the story. In late April of 2001, 33-year-old Christoph Rokenkor was arrested in British Columbia for defrauding an elderly couple out of over $100,000. He spent the next 14 months behind bars while awaiting his trial. Finally, in June of 2002, a judge decided that he had served enough time in Canadian custody. She soon had Christoph extradited to the United States to face his charges there. At his 2003 sentencing in Brooklyn, New York, Christoph took a plea deal. He spent the next 46 months in prison and paid $1.3 million in damages to his victims. Safe behind bars, Christoph basked in the glow of the international spotlight. He set up interviews with various media outlets, which he performed by phone or through the glass walls of the visitation room. He was released from prison in October of 2005, and immigration officials quickly put him on a plane back to France. Pia had left Christophe while he was incarcerated, so she did not join him. However, her ex-husband did still manage to bring some companions across the Atlantic. A camera crew from NBC's Dateline. Dateline reported that Christophe already had a team of media handlers at the ready upon arrival in France. People were arranging interviews with the French press and selling his photos and the rights to his life story. The French public found Christophe just as fascinating as Hines Payon and his Hamptons friends had. They embraced the con man, and for the first time in his life, Christophe Rocancourt was famous in his own right. No alias needed. 
Christophe began dating Sonia Roland, a former Miss France, after he had arrived back home. In January of 2007, she gave birth to their daughter, Tess. Their relationship fizzled shortly after Tess's birth, however, and Christophe shifted his focus to another woman, filmmaker, author, and professor, Catherine Breyer. Like most of Christophe's relationships, his ties to Catherine began with a business deal. But in this instance, Christophe was not the one to initiate the partnership. Catherine had suffered a stroke in 2004, and while she was recovering, she saw Christophe on a talk show, bragging about how he had spent years swindling people out of tons of money. Catherine felt certain that this was the man she needed to cast as the lead in her next film. She often found her actors in unconventional ways, sitting in a cafe or walking down the street. For certain roles, she didn't want someone to merely play a character. She wanted them to be the character. Catherine got in contact with Christoph. He agreed to take the part, and they began spending lots of time together. Although Catherine did not often like to associate with her actors before beginning production, Christoph inserted himself into her life with such persistence that she could not turn him away. Because Catherine was still dealing with the physical repercussions of her stroke, which had left her without the ability to use half her body, she began to rely on Christoph for help. In an interview with Marie Claire magazine, Catherine described her relationship to Christophe as an addiction. She was utterly dependent on anyone who was able to help her get up, help her walk, help her move in any way. At some point during their relationship, Christophe began asking Catherine to lend him money, and she did. Sometimes she gave him a loan because she felt indebted to the man taking care of her, but on other occasions, she wrote him a check that she wouldn't remember later because he convinced her to do it while under the influence of powerful medications. Overall, Catherine says she signed 16 checks within the course of a year and a half, totaling well over a million dollars today, factoring in the exchange rate. In that same Marie Claire interview, Catherine asserts that because of this, they eventually found themselves completely dependent on one another. She needed him physically, he needed her financially. She said, The addiction was probably mutual, but he took advantage of it, noting that the relationship was similar to the scorpion and the frog. The fable of the scorpion and the frog has been around for centuries. The basic story is as follows. A scorpion and a frog meet on the bank of a stream. The scorpion cannot swim, so he asks a frog to carry him across on his back. The frog asks, how do I know you won't sting me? And the scorpion replies, because if I do, I will die too. The frog accepts this logic and allows the scorpion to climb on his back, but halfway across the stream, the scorpion stings him anyway. As the two creatures drown, the frog asks the scorpion why he stung him, dooming them both to death. The scorpion answers, I can't help it. It's my nature. 
Though the moral of the fable is never explicitly stated, most believe that the story teaches us to always be aware of someone's true nature, because people cannot change. But psychologists have found that this isn't always the case. In their January 2020 paper, professors of psychology Nathan Hudson, R. Chris Fraley, William Chopik, and Daniel Briley found that people can change aspects of their personalities they just need to have a true desire to change and the patience to allow that change to happen. For argument's sake, if the frog wanted to be a little less trusting, he could have set some goals for himself and follow through with those goals over time. And if the scorpion wanted to be less vicious, he too could have made that change, but he would need to really want to do it. As applied to Christoph and Catherine's relationship, Catherine is the frog and Christoph is the scorpion. And Catherine decided she had had enough of being stung. She wanted to change. In July of 2009, Catherine filed an official complaint against Christoph, accusing him of abus de faiblesse, which in English means abuse of weakness. Translated into English, the French Penal Code defines this crime as taking advantage of a person's weakness to gain an advantage contrary to the interests of the abused person. Catherine alleges that Christophe threatened her life when she told him she was pressing charges, which is how she finally knew for sure that she was doing the right thing. In November of 2009, Catherine published a book about her experience entitled, appropriately, Abou de Faiblesse. One month later, Christophe was officially indicted for the offence. While he awaited his trial, Christophe continued to live as a French celebrity personality, appearing on talk shows and attending awards functions. Meanwhile, Catherine continued to turn her pain into art, immediately getting to work on a film based on her book. In February of 2012, Christophe was found guilty of abuse of weakness and sentenced to 16 months in prison. In 2013, Catherine released her film, also titled Abu de Faiblesse, to rave reviews. Critic Peter Sobsinski gave it four stars, declaring it a work just as startling and potent as anything Catherine has done to date, and a powerful example of art being used to exercise personal demons. Christophe served his sentence and was released from prison in 2013, but the con man couldn't manage to stay out of trouble. The very next year, in October of 2014, Christophe was arrested again. This time, he was charged with organizing and carrying out a scheme to sell fraudulent residency permits. Christophe's lawyer, his girlfriend, and a Parisian police officer named Christian Proutot were also arrested for participating in the scam. Christian's involvement was particularly shocking, as he was a well-respected member of the force. Furthermore, he was a former chief of the GIGN, a tactical arm of the French police, trained to carry out anti-terrorism and hostage rescue missions. The fake visa racket and its subsequent trial exposed a deep well of corruption within the police force, proving that Christian Proutot wasn't the only bad apple in the barrel. 
three other members of the Paris police, including the head of the criminal investigation unit, were later arrested for feeding their fellow officer information during the trial that would help lighten his sentence and place the blame solely on Christophe. Even though he was sent to jail, Christophe somehow continued to participate in crimes involving the Paris police. While behind bars, he befriended the man in the cell next door, Jonathan Guillaume. Jonathan was another former Paris police officer, accused of stealing 48 kilos of cocaine from the police station and selling it. Jonathan explained to Christophe that he had buried most of the profits he had made off the drugs, and the two men arranged for their relatives to locate and dig up Jonathan's nest egg. Allegedly, Christophe repeatedly denied any involvement in the crime. He had recently been released from jail and was left with a relatively manageable fine for his alleged involvement in the retrieval of Jonathan Guillaume's drug money. Jonathan, however, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for his crimes. While Christophe has apparently managed to keep himself out of trouble throughout the last few years, he has never tried to shun the spotlight. He appeared on a couple of talk shows in 2016, and in 2017, he participated in Imposteur, a two-part documentary series about his life for the French production company Canal Plus. Because the first trial regarding Christophe's fraudulent residency permits revealed such a deep well of corruption within the Paris police force, Christophe and the rest of the people involved are still under criminal prosecution regarding the matter. A new trial was set to take place in late May of 2020, but ended up getting postponed due to the COVID-19 health crisis. So for now, the swindler to the stars continues on as a free man. He has said that he would like to leave France after his next trial as he feels he is too infamous to function there. He wants to move somewhere where the name Christophe Rochencourt isn't associated with crime, fraud and corruption. But after running cons in so many different countries and spending so much time publicizing himself, that may just prove to be an impossible task. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Christoph Rokenkor, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Counterfeit Rockefeller by Brian Burrow of Vanity Fair, as well as Catch Him If You Can by Mike Taibbi of NBC's Dateline, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artist was written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Listener.